0: Anna the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher she was very
1: old she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage she never left the temple but worshiped night and day fasting and
0: praying and she might have said something like this in her prayers praise the Lord O my soul while I live I will praise the Lord I will sing praises to my God while I have my being
1: people of God let's go to prayer together Holy Father, thank you for the example of your servant, Anna, who showed us what day by day, month by month, year by year, lifetime of worshiping you looks like. Father, it seems such a high and unattainable goal for so many of us, but yet because of your Holy Spirit living within each of us who have received Jesus as Savior, you have promised that you will continue your work of changing each one of us day by day, progressively into the image of your Son. And so, Father, help us, teach us to worship you. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We want to worship you. Help us to worship you better. In Jesus' name.
0: the podium down there like Micah did last Sunday and uh, get in your face, but uh, I might try it sometime. It's all right. The Lord is our treasure. I'd invite you to pray with me as we uh, prepare to worship through the study of God's word. Father in heaven, I pray that you would become increasingly our treasure, that you would open our eyes. That we might behold wonderful truths from your law that we might let the word of Christ dwell in us richly teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord how I ask that you would guide us in this study and work to transform us in our lives for your glory And for the gain of your kingdom, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a freshman in college, I went to church with a friend. I knew on campus, and he invited me to go to church. So I went to church, and when we were in Sunday school, oh, I'm sorry, are the young people, you're all dismissed now. Did I miss all that? Okay, some of you didn't get the memo, so you're okay. So we went to church, and during Sunday school, which was a, for some people here, this is a pre-warm-up for the sermon, so you go to Sunday school and you get some education. The teacher said that in the evening service, which they had an evening service in their church, that they were going to do a, have a, a foot washing and love feast. And I went, What? in my mind, and so he started explaining, in fact, what they were going to do in this service, and I thought, wow, that sounds really strange. Uh, so I'm not going to go there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just So I didn't show up church on Sunday night. I was like, oh, that's, that's not for me. When I went to seminary, I went to a, a church, actually attended a church, of the same denominational background, the same flavor, and actually participated in a, a foot washing and a love feast celebration. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. Oh, this is very meaningful. And I say that because oftentimes it's not very uncommon for us as we walk through our spiritual journey to encounter practices that we find very odd or different or that we're resistant to. I mean, I've never sung the song we sang uh, this morning to bluegrass melody. Uh, you know that's that's kind of a that's kind of different. Some people come to B- Creekside and we have to explain to them what it is to be baptized by immersion. I mean, they're going to get all wet. They're going to get dunked, and then they're going to come up, and it's kind of like undignified. Some people, when you talk to them about. Giving financially, it's like, whoa, that's kind of strange. Yeah, that's all they want is our money. So we all encounter things in our, in our spiritual journey that we find resistant, that we're resistant to. And this morning we're going to look at one of the spiritual workouts. For those of you who haven't been with us, we're doing summer workouts for spiritual training. And one of the workouts that we're going to look at this morning is one that many people are at least... Not very familiar with, and if they're a little bit familiar with it, they're a little bit hesitant to it, and many times, very resistant to the discussion of this whole topic of fasting. And so, since this is one of the things that's going to could be very helpful and encouraging to us in our spiritual journey, we're going to take a look at it this morning, kind of from a thirty thousand foot view. So we're going to look down on some of the key texts, but not going to camp on any one text for very long. So I this morning we're going to look at three, the answers to three questions that I think if we answer these questions appropriately are going to be helpful to provide a solid basis for implementing the concept and the practice of fasting into our own spiritual lives to give us spiritual strength. In our spiritual training. And so I want to just jump right in. If you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles. We're going to be first in Matthew chapter six, or if you have your phone or your device, or if you want to reach down underneath the seat in front of you, there is a Bible there. Uh, we're going to be in different passages, so uh, just bear with me if you would. But we're in Matthew chapter six to begin with. But I want to look at these three factors that, first of all, we're going to talk about what is our perception of fasting, our perspective. I mean, when you sit here this morning, and I, and, you know, I, I thought when Amy said he's going to preach on fasting, I look, kind of looked around to see if anybody ran for the door, you know. It's like, whoa, is, uh, is they going to skate out on us, you know. And it's always dangerous, you know, because people are coming and they're not uh, used to our church. Maybe it's the first time you've been here. It's like, whoa, I went to this church, never been to church there before, and they talked about something really weird. You know, so I'm kind of con- I'm conscious of that, but I'm not going to be overly sensitive to it because it's in the Word of God. And so we're just kind of walking through the Scripture. This is where we're at today, and the question that comes to mind: What is a perspective? And there are three factors that I'm going to look at and discuss with you this morning that influence our perspective. First of all, what do we mean by fasting? What's the definition? Donald Whitney, in, uh, in his book on spiritual disciplines, said this, Fasting is voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So you choose not to eat for a spiritual purpose. Now, just think about that. Anybody here ever skipped a meal? I mean, some of you less than others, but, uh, you know, and I'm not pointing out fingers, just some of us like, you know, eating is pretty important. Like, I wake up hungry. Okay? I don't care if I wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm hungry. Some of you skip a meal every day. Some of you couldn't care less about breakfast. You get up and you're just kind of going on. Some of you have had to uh, have your blood drawn for a lab report, or lab report or labs, you know, so you have to do this fasting thing. Some of you have had surgery and you have to fast for surgery. Some of you get so caught up in work that you skip the meal. Some of you get so caught up in shopping that, hey, we didn't have time to stop at the pretzel maker. Some of you get so caught up in leisure activities, I'm out on the lake, I don't have time to eat. So skipping a meal is not that big of a deal. But here the idea is you skip a meal for a spiritual purpose. Secondly, our doubts about fasting. Okay, just be honest for a minute. I'm just going to, this isn't like the uh, psychologist, the psychiatrist, you know, the word association thing. I'm going to say a word you, just whatever is the first thing pops into your mind. Fasting. I'm thinking some of you might be uh, imagining this uh, mid-century monks in a monastery wearing these brown robes. And all they do is walk around chanting Gregorian chants and fasting and praying all day. Or you have to be like Anna. Seven years married and then for the rest of her life all she did was hang out in the temple and pray and fast. Like that's it. And that's kind of our concept. The second thing I want to say is that our perception is influenced by our culture. We live as Americans in instant gratification culture fixated on food. I I mean, okay. Honestly, like one of the very first things you're going to think about even before the service is over is where are we going to eat? I mean, we moved to Urbandale from Timbuktu, you know. We didn't live in the middle of nowhere, but you could see it from where we lived, okay? And people say, oh, where do you like to go eat? What's the restaurants do you like to go to? Where do, you, where do you go out for eat?" And I'm thinking, I don't know. I just, I, I really don't. I don't really get into going out to eat myself, honestly. My wife's a great cook, so I just like to eat her food, you know. And uh, so anyhow, you, we think about it. In our culture, Fix-It, asking people to skip a meal, especially for a spiritual purpose, is kind of like expecting the Cyclones or the Hawkeyes to win the BCS Championship Series. It's possible, but yeah, it's highly improbable, you know. It's just, it's just not like it's going to happen very soon it's not a very sure bet if you well sorry I shouldn't have said that but I did so it's just something that we're not going there we're just not going to think about it all right we probably view fasting a little bit like the, uh, the like those who fast like the guy who was at this party described himself to a girl he said I'm not one of those nerds who who you know, invented a bunch of software programs I'm just a nerd So just think, only nerds would would do this. But the honest truth is that there are extremes. And I like what John Wesley has to say in highlighting the two extremes with regard to fasting. He says, Some have exalted the religious fasting beyond all Scripture and reason. And others have utterly disregarded it. I want to say this morning that as it relates to believers... Fasting is not commanded, but it is expected. You're in Matthew chapter 6, or you're in Matthew, maybe you didn't know what chapter, but now we're in chapter 6. I want you to look at verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, Jesus says this, And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, They have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in heaven or in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Jesus never said, thou shalt fast, but notice what he did say. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. So he didn't command it, but he certainly expected it. And this text is taken from a context. And the context is the Sermon on the Mount. And preceding his discussion on fasting, Jesus has spent a number of verses on prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in there. The Lord teaches us to pray. Well, here's what we taught to pray. Then after that, there are a lot of verses on giving. And let's just be honest. In, in the Church of Jesus Christ we're we're pretty down with the, the the praying part and the and the giving part like we we we're okay with that and we study that stuff and we apply that stuff but what happened to what's in the middle we just kind of skip over that usually the, the fasting part now in Matthew chapter 9 verse 15 we're going to i think we have we have that on the screen you got 915 yeah this is jesus response To the question about why John's disciples and the Pharisees fast. And Jesus, and why his disciples don't. And he says, well, while the bridegroom's present, they're not going to fast. But when the bridegroom is gone, then they'll fast. Now, he's the bridegroom, so when he's gone, there's an expectation. Here is what... Richard Foster observed about this text. Although the words are not couched in the form of a command, it's clear from this passage that Christ both upheld the discipline of fasting and anticipated that his followers would do it. We have some really good friends, and they have several children. And whenever we walk into their house, you see all the shoes lined up right there, right when you walk in, boom, 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 boom. They don't have a sign above the door that says, remove your shoes. But it's certainly clear that you're expected to remove your shoes. Jesus didn't say, thou shalt fast and then fill in the blank. But he certainly said, when you fast. And he certainly said, when the bridegroom's gone, then those who are as the bride will, will fast. Then... Thirdly, I want to look at the disposition, our disposition for fasting. We've looked at the definition for fasting, our doubts about it. Now, our disposition towards it. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, we see that fasting is between us and God. It's not like you're not supposed to make a big deal about it. It's not like everybody in the world is supposed to know about it. And Richard Foster said, asserts that fasting must forever center on God. If our fasting... Is, unto, is not unto God we have failed. It's not a hunger strike to, to twist God's arm. You know, it's not like, okay, I'm going to go on a hunger strike and God's going to give me what I want. No, it's not. It's not a manipulate, but it is a chance. It's a chance for us to show and to say to God, I love you more than I love food. It's a chance for us to say that, Lord, God in heaven, I need your direction. And I, and, I, and I want to secure your action more than I want a meal. That's more important to me than eating right now. So that's the discussion about our perspective. Now I want you to look at the question of what is our purpose? Why would we do this? Well, in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 6, it becomes clear that you're not supposed to do this before men you're supposed to do it before God it's an expression of humility intended to get God's attention and secure his action because we know based on Matthew 16 through 18 that if it's engaged in properly and I'm going to refer to a passage I don't we're not going to go there right yet but in Isaiah 58 chapter 4, verse, the end of the verse, we know that if, if we do this, we're trying to make our voice heard. And when we make our voice heard in the proper way, Matthew 6, 18 says that the Lord will who hears you will repay. What's that mean? It means that God hears the voice of those who fast and responds. Again, it's Fasting and prayer, it's not just that God is a cosmic vending machine and we just put in the the, the prayer and out comes the result. But God will hear and respond to our prayers and to our fasting. That's the point that he's trying to, to make there. Wesley says this, First let it, fasting, be done unto the Lord, with our eye singly fixed on him, that our attention herein be this, and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven, The purpose of getting God's attention is not to eclipse God, it's to focus on God. And when we focus on God, then we'll show that we're more interested in the blesser than we are the blessing that comes from our fasting. But I want to look at three specific reasons. The general reason is to get God's attention into secure his action. The specific reasons, there are many, as we look throughout the scripture on on texts that deal with fasting. But I just want to focus on three purposes for our fasting. The first is to seek God's assistance. We're seeking God's assistance. Uh, His provision, His protection, His intervention. You're going to see on the screen Ezra chapter 8. Ezra has been led by God to go back to Jerusalem, and he's told the king that the great God of heaven is so powerful and great that he takes care of his people. Now, that's my paraphrase, okay? That's not anywhere close to a quote. But now they have to walk 900 miles through pirate-infested territory to get back to Jerusalem. And so he says, I can't go to the king and say, can you send some soldiers? Because I just told him how great God is. So he seeks and prays and fasts and says, Lord, protect us on our journey.'" That's the paraphrase, okay? So uh, you can read it up there. We fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty, and they arrived, okay? In in Esther, the book of Esther, and you can just write these down, you can look at them later, beginning in chapter 4, verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 2. Esther goes before the king because there's a decree that all the Jewish people are going to be destroyed, and she's one. Of them. And so she said, they fasted and prayed for three days and three nights. And she said to the God of heaven, Pray that I will have protection. I mean, she said, if you go before the king and he doesn't offer his scepter to you, whoosh, you know, I mean, it's curtains. So she wants protection, but she also wants God's intervention for the people, the Jewish people, so that he would avert the judgment that's coming upon them. So she prays for protection, she prays for God's intervention. So, I mean, the natural question is, do we ever desperately want and need God's provision? Do you need God's provision? Do you want God's provision as a single person that God would provide a spouse, if that's his will? Provision for a job. Provision for you to have some... Emotional, physical, relational healing. We need God's provision, financial resources to take us through this next difficult time. We need provision of God's freedom from some addictive or compulsive behavior or for, from some besetting sin. God, I need your provision. Do you ever need God's protection? You need God's protection from your employer, maybe, I don't know, or another employee, or a classmate, or a teacher, or a neighbor. That's kind of scary. You need God's protection. On May 9th, 1798, the United States was on the verge of war with France. And then President John Adams called for a national day of prayer and fasting. That somehow God would intervene. And protect the United States and prevent a war from happening. God's protection. Do we need God's intervention? You ever felt desperate for a family member? Maybe you're a parent and you've had a child that's, that's gone away or one that's still straying from God's will. And you desperately want and need and desire God's intervention. Some of us have family members, friends and neighbors that don't know Christ. I was on the phone last night. Marla and I were on the phone last night with some family members and one of the members of Marla's family is, is, is dying. He wants nothing to do with God. Do we care enough that we're willing to miss a meal to get God's attention for intervention and in bringing someone to Christ? Maybe there's a, a, a relationship that's broken maybe it's a family member maybe it's a neighbor maybe it's something that we we really want God to work well maybe we need prayer for unity in the body of Christ and are we willing to get on our knees are we willing to skip a meal and go to God and say Lord we need your help we you know I don't know what to do Jehoshaphat said but my eyes are on you Lord I don't know what to do. We go to God in fasting and prayer, not just for guidance, but we go to Him for forgiveness. I'm I'm sorry. I said, guides, I said assistance, but forgiveness. We go to him for forgiveness. We see this in Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to turn to Daniel. I'm going to turn there, but you don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but in Daniel chapter 9, we're going to have some uh, verses up on the screen, but in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel goes before the Lord because he's aware that there's only supposed to be 70 years of captivity, and they're getting near it, and he looks at the people, and he says, we are in a mess here in Babylon, and he beseeches the Lord in prayer and confesses the sins of the people in his own sins, seeking God's forgiveness. I find it fascinating that in chapter 9, verses 3 through 19, in Daniel chapter 9, there are 16 verses. In 12 of the 16 verses, Daniel brings attention to their sinfulness and the waywardness of the people. 12 of the 16 verses. He says, Lord, we have sinned. We've sinned greatly. And he recognizes in verses 14 and 16, he recognizes God's right. He says, therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought us brought thy people out of uh, the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. He was aware of their sin. And their sin was leading to consequences. There were consequences to their sin and he was pleading in verses 18 and 19 he says oh lord oh my god incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name for we are not presenting our supplication before you on account of any merits on our own but on account of your great compassion oh lord hear oh lord forgive oh lord listen and take action for your own sake do something God would be glorified in Daniel's mind when a guilty but penitent people were mercifully allowed to return to their city after they'd sinned so profusely. I know a person, nobody in my immediate family, so don't start guessing, who has over 20 I think maybe even more than 25 warnings for speeding. 25 warnings. That's not... Do you think they sing the praises of the police for their merciful actions towards a guilty but penitent person? Absolutely. If they don't, they have need for their head to be examined. I see in Daniel penitence and repentance. In Joel chapter 1, verse 14 consists uh, as a a call, a command, a fast that consists of a call for the people to repent, for the people to return, for the people to receive the blessings of God. Because they haven't received the blessings of God. They have been experienced drought and locusts and what's coming. These things are just a harbinger of things that are to come in the day of the Lord. And he says, Repent. Go to Joel chapter 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I wonder if we realize that fasting is a means of seeking God's mercy when we as individuals, when we as a church, when we as a nation, become aware, acutely aware of our sinfulness and the experience or and or the expectation of God's wrath as a result of our sinfulness and we turn to Him to repent and avoid and escape His punishment. I just think we don't think we're that bad. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of places worse than here. A lot of people worse than me. Well... Fasting and prayer is the plea of a penitent heart for God's forgiveness and restoration. And finally, not only is it for our assistance, not only do we pray and fast for forgiveness, but we pray and fast for God's guidance. The first example is a hunger for God's wisdom for life. And the the text that I'm referring to, and you can just write it down, is in Judges chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, because Israel, the people of Israel were praying and fasting to God saying, should we go fight our brothers because they were kind of jerks and now are we supposed to go up and and we've already gone up twice and lost, so should we go again? They needed guidance. They needed God's guidance. Secondly, there's a hunger for God's workers in the church. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, the leaders of the church were praying and fasting and when the Spirit of God spoke to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. You know what we do. Hey, we need some people to work in Awana. Come join us. Oh, it's that easy, huh? Warm bodies, please show up. Well, maybe we should be a little more serious about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to make an announcement and ask for people to come and help. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. Okay, but maybe we should be. We need God's work because we want God to raise up godly, spiritual leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there's a hunger for God's witness to all nations. And uh, there's a, a passage in Isaiah. And I came across this in some of my reading in preparation for the sermon in chapter 62, verses 1 through 7. There's no mention of fasting here, but it mentions God's heart. And His heart for Jerusalem and God's people and to be exalted and magnified in the world. And I wonder if we really want that. I wonder if I want it that bad. I really want God to be honored and glorified and magnified and people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, realizing that we're wicked and desperate sinners and deserving of judgment because what Christ did on the cross, he paid the debt that we deserve so that if we believe in him, we can be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life and walk with God each day with purpose and meaning for eternity. I really care. The last question I want to answer or give an answer to or try to answer is, how do we practice this? What do we do when we fast? I mean, how how does that all work out, uh, actually? And uh, I want to turn to a passage in Isaiah, which I've deviated from, which I had initially thought this would be the main passage uh, that I would be preaching on, but I didn't want to focus here the whole time. But there are two approaches to fasting to consider. First, there's the fasting which God detests. We want to avoid that. And there's the fasting in which God delights, and that's what we want to pursue. Well, the fasting that God detests is in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1-5, through 5, and I'm not going to read through it all, but the prophet is called to boldly condemn the people for their ritualistic and their hypocritical fasting because they were fasting all right. And I like the NIV translation of, of verse 2. It says, "...they seem eager to know my ways," as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. So here's the deal. The people of Israel, they're fasting and praying. And they're going to God and say, why don't you notice? What's the deal? And God answers them. In verse 3, again in the NIV, on the day of your fast, you do as you please. Who are they thinking about? themselves, not thinking about God. In their commentary on this text, Kyle and Dalich say this, the exiles boast of this fasting here, but it is a heartless dead work, therefore worthless in the sight of God. God's indictment of them is in the, the questions of verse five. He says this, is it a fast like this, which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed or for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed, will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Now, listen to that. That's exactly what a fast is supposed to be. And he's saying, that's not what I'm asking for. Why? Because their heart's not right with him. Don't start doing this religious ritual stuff, which is actually what he said is a fast, but that's not the fast that I desire, because you're playing with God, you're over here sinning like the devil and then coming over here and acting like you're spiritual and expecting me to be blessing you for it. No, it doesn't work that way. Mere religious activity that consists of outward religiosity that's void of true sincerity is abominable to God. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't even, he's not pleased with that at all. A ritual observance of certain practices won't gain God's attention, won't motivate his action. I remember when I was in high school, uh, before my first high school baseball game, I had this ritual. And I, I went through this ritual, you know, I had to put certain socks on, I had to put them on at the right time. And I had to rest for a certain amount of time. I ate a certain meal and, and we won the game. Oh, Hey, this works. So next game, I went through the exact same ritual, you know, put my socks on, one you know, on the right tide, right time, had the right same meal, rested for the same amount of time, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I did that. And we won some and we lost some. You know, it had nothing to do with me playing mind games That somehow this ritual was, you know, you see baseball teams and they're all shaking their hat like this. You know, that's their little lucky charm that somehow they're going to strike the guy out. Or, you know, they're chanting from the sidelines. And okay, that's fine. Get into the game. But rituals don't work. Especially with God. He's not fooled. So what is the fasting in which God delights? It's not pretending. It's not living in sin and trying to manipulate God. He's not stupid. In verses 6 and 7, we see there is the fasting of obedience that God delights in. Now, this is kind of a different one, like, whoa. He says in verse 6, he says... Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of, the, of wickedness and undo the bands of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? It's not really a fast that, in the way we define it. I mean, it's a metaphorical, figurative fast. It's, it's obedience to the truth of the word of God. It's to what God calls us to. That is a fast in God's sight. That is, in essence, a way of pleasing God that they weren't doing. So do that before you abstain from food for a spiritual purpose. That's what I think he's saying to me and to you. And my mind ran to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. You know, Prophet Samuel told... Uh, Saul to go whoop up on the Amalekites. I mean, big time. Don't leave anything. Yeah, well, you know, so they kind of did it halfway. And they, they took some of the spoil and, you know, and then Samuel comes and he says, what, what are you doing? Oh, we, you're supposed to take them all out. We did. Well, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? Oh, well, we, we brought some for God. You know, we, we, we spiritualize it. We brought some for God. We're going to offer sacrifices. No! Does the Lord take any delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? No. He is pleased with, rather than obedience to me, that's, uh, I don't know, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Okay? Does the Lord take delight in that? Burnt offerings and sacrifices? No, but in obedience to me. See, God desires right living, not empty rituals. So for us, me, you, fasting of obedience is extending love you read the text, what were they not doing? These are their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were oppressing them. They were putting them down. They were not taking in the the, the poor and caring for them. They were not clothing the naked. So where do we see our brothers and sisters in need? Extend love. Extend forgiveness. And eliminate bitterness and jealousy and strife and hostility. We do these things. That's what God calls it. That's a fast of obedience that God delights. Then there's the fast of abstinence that God delights in. And that's the other fasts that we've been talking about exclusively up to this point. So I want to talk about when do you do that? I mean, when do you fast? When should we fast? Well, some would suggest we should fast on a regular basis, like, you know, just set a time. I want to say this before. This is no legalistic ritual, okay? So this is like, let the Lord lead you in this. But I, I think there's probably some merit. I've, in the past, had times when I was regularly fasting. And then I get away from it. And then I come back to it. And then I examine my motives. Why am I doing this? You know, I used to do that with journaling. You know, I was like, journals, and i write. What am I doing this for? Am I doing this so somebody will read it and think I'm really spiritual someday? So I quit. Now, That's me. I'm not saying that's you. Okay, do you understand that? I mean, you can write journals and praise God if you do, and and God blesses your heart, then that's between you and God. You can fast, and we can fast regularly, but for sure we should fast on special occasions when we become overwhelmed with our need for God's assistance, when we're acutely aware of sin in our life for which we need His forgiveness. When we understand that we are desperately in need of his guidance, we should fast and pray and and, and look to the Lord for his, his wisdom. So who's supposed to fast? Individual believers, groups of believers, churches, even nations can fast. March 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln called for a national day of prayer and fasting. Why? That we would beseech Almighty God. Because he understood that he needed the Lord. So how should we do this? Well, I'm going to suggest to you, I'm just going to give you suggestions, okay? This is, this is not like, I, I got this from the Bible, and it says that you should only do it this way. There are different ways. You can go to Esther, and she fasted and prayed and asked everybody to fast and pray. That was an absolute fast. They drank nothing, and they ate nothing for three days and three nights. I don't recommend that. If you don't drink anything for three days, you're almost dead, okay? And some people might be, you know, your body can go without food for a long time. We can't go without fluids for very long. The body is 85% water, all right? Last time I checked, uh, the statistics, 85%. So if you don't drink anything, you're toast, okay? What I would suggest is just start small. I mean, skip a meal. Some of you, that's no problem. You do it every day. But how about you do it this time for a spiritual purpose rather than for a diet or for busyness? You say, okay, the time that I would, would spend in a meal, I'm going to spend with God. Just start. Do one day. You know, skip a meal one day. You know, you can skip breakfast. You can skip lunch. You can skip supper. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to tell you how it has to be done. And then you, you decide when you're, how you're going to do it, okay? And then you do a partial fast, I would suggest you decide what you're going to drink. I'm going to drink some juice. You know, I'm going to drink some apple juice or some orange juice or whatever. Whatever juices you up, you know, you drink your juice. Uh, Probably not five-hour energy. That probably wouldn't be the best thing if you're trying to fast. Maybe some of you think it would. But you know what? If you fast and pray and you fall asleep, then you needed to sleep. Yeah. Maybe some of you, the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. I'm serious. I'm not joking even. Decide what you want to drink. And then, you know, go through that day and decide when you're going to eat again. Okay, so I'm going to to not eat breakfast, but I'm going to eat uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There's no magic to it. I'm not saying maybe I'm going to skip lunch and I'm going to eat. Maybe you're going to go from sunrise to sunset. Maybe you're going to go from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. You know, it's not a magical thing. It's between you and God. But just try to set a goal and, and just do that and pray. I like what Don Whitney says there are times when it cannot, can be not more oh wait, I got to start over there are times when it can be not only more important but much more rewarding to feast on God than on food Remember this the scriptural examples are given to us from which we draw principles so that what we see in the scripture is not a prescription for us because there's all these different examples so like what Esther did is not necessarily, okay, everybody has to do it that way. What Moses did up on the mountain for, in Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, that's not everybody's prescription either. So don't make that your, your prescription for your life. Let God lead you and guide you. We're imperfect people. And we need to know that we're imperfect people. Come to God as imperfect people. Asking for him uh, to guide us and to direct us and, uh, you know, listen. So I, I just, you know, I'm wondering, you know, you're here today and maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe you're like, oh, this is really weird. You know, it's kind of like foot washing. And you, you don't know about this. You know what I'd like to say? Look, don't judge Christians or this text or these texts uh, by the example that you see in believers because we're imperfect people. Do you understand when we went to Isaiah, God doesn't like hypocrites either. And so when you see a hypocrite, don't don't worry, just look to God. What My challenge for you is to accept God's word that says that Jesus came into this world to die on a cross to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay so that if we would confess with our sins and turn with our heart and trust in him, we would be saved. And that God would help us. Fasting is for those who are feasting on God. And those who are feasting on God are those who are forgiven. So I'm just inviting you to feast on God by being forgiven. And then you can worry about, you know, should I fast? Should I pray? Should I, how much should I read the Bible? How much should I do this and that? If you're here as a, as a believer this morning, think about this. Several years ago, uh, we went to SeaWorld. And at SeaWorld in the main viewing area, they have what was at that time, I don't know if they still have it, they have a called the soak zone, they have a soak zone there? Yeah, they got a soak zone. <laughs> Basically what that means is you sit there, you're gonna get all wet with bitter cold seawater, because the orcas don't swim in the Caribbean. Okay. So you're going to get all wet, and you know what? It's interesting to watch people, because people come in there, and some of them, they're like sitting all around the fringes of the soak zone. Some people, they're just getting as far away from the soak zone as they can get. And other people just like plop down right in the middle. You know, they got their plastic bags over their heads, and they're just ready to get all wet, you know. And it's salt water too, folks, so you get wet with salt water, you're going to be grungy for the rest of the time you're in Sea World, okay? What I'm asking you to do is to prayerfully consider going into the Soak Zone adventure with a spiritual workout of fasting. And I'm going to get specific. And I'm going to ask you to join me on Tuesday, August 27th. Now, is this legalistic? No. So you may want to do it on Monday. You may do it uh, the day after, on, on the 28th. You may do it on the following Saturday. I, you know but i picked the 27th because that's the day before the launch of our fall ministries i just think it'd be cool that if as a church many of us would commit to fast and pray so like when you would normally be eating just spend some time fasting and praying and then pray throughout the day you know you still have i know you have jobs you got things you got to do but you know god can bring things to mind and here's what i want you to pray I want you to pray for individual and corporate cleansing. That God would show us our sin. That we would repent of our sins. That we would repent of our discontent, our fear, our worldly desires, and our, our worldly involvements. That we would repent of maybe wasting of time or wasting of our talents, wasting of our treasures. We just spend time asking. Secondly, I want you to pray for God's guidance, that God would raise up the workers for his work at Creekside Church for his glory. Okay, Just pray that God would, this is Acts 13, just pray and fast. God, please be about the business of bringing the workers here that you want for us to do our part for your kingdom. And then finally, pray for God to use us to be his witnesses For Christ in our families, our neighborhoods, our community, and the world. Okay? Pray for repentance. Pray for guidance. Pray for God's glory through his witness. You know, I said that fasting is feasting on God. And feasting on God is for those who are forgiven. And so when we break bread and we take the cup, what are we doing? We're remembering that we're forgiven through the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us through these symbols. And in effect, we're implementing another means of feasting on God. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're invited to come and partake of these elements and remind yourself of what Christ has done for us and feast on God. Let's pray. Father... I thank you for difficult truths from your word, and I pray that you would apply them to our lives, that you'd work in our hearts and souls, that we would see that fasting is just a means of connecting with you and honoring you and glorifying you and seeking your assistance and seeking your forgiveness and seeking your guidance. I pray that as we take these elements... That we receive him into our bodies is a great appreciation for what you've done for us at Calvary. We pray in Christ's name.
1: Lord, I find-